When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm blessed to be in dialogue with Greta Euling. She is a lecturer at the University of Michigan, where she teaches for the Program in International Comparative Studies. She is also associate faculty with the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. Today, we will be discussing her new book, Everyday War, The Conflict Over Donbass, Ukraine, published by Cornell University Press 2023. Greta, I'm tremendously fortunate to be in dialogue with you today. It's great to be here. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this book? I would be happy to. I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood in Madison, Wisconsin. It was near the University of Wisconsin where my father worked. So students from all over the world sat next to me at school, became my friends, invited me to their homes. They were really my social world. And I think that experience in, you know, beginning with kindergarten really made me especially comfortable with field work. Um, I started to feel most at home when I was away from home. And um, I found being in other people's homes really an enlivening experience. And so that translated into a career when I discovered I could have basically, you know, a profession as an anthropologist um, centered in in people's stories and um, learning about the world experientially. Um, I, you know, interestingly enough, I considered getting a master's in international relations because I, I just, I so admire the work that uh, public servants do in particular. And I'm sure it would have been a very satisfying career, but what attracted me to anthropology um, was the opportunity to be in a position to really ask my own questions. So it was the, the freedom and the creativity of being an anthropologist um, that drew me into this field. What message does this book convey? What are the primary themes in this book? I think that the the, the primary theme in the book um, is really about the ways in which non-combatant civilians uh, matter for countries at war. So the book as a whole explores the um, subjective experiences of civilians um, during the war in Ukraine and 
I explore this through two sort of main sub-themes, the first of which is everyday war. Um, what I mean by everyday war is the very conscious and creative ways that people responded to the war going on around them. Um, and I, so I began pursuing this topic when, um, during my research in Ukraine, it was clear that civilians were engaging deeply and strategically with the military conflict. And so this facilitated a shift in which I became uh, less interested in what was being done to people, although that, of course, is also important, um, than how civilians were acting on their own and one another's behalf. I think everyday war is is perfectly exemplified by Alexandra, who fled the conflict early on in um, the Donbass region with her family. And the, the difficulty was that her father decided to go back to the zone of conflict as a volunteer, um, part of a battalion. And the challenge was that at the time that he did that, the Ukrainian military was relatively weak. And so he was not actually supplied with you know, any of the gear that he needed for his role as a sniper. Alexandra abandoned her university studies and at the age of 21 began provisioning her father. First it was, you know, camo gear, then night vision goggles, uh, boots, tactical gloves, everything he needed to be a safer sniper. And the reason that that exemplifies everyday war because is that her her daily life was not concerned with friendships or studies or career, right? It was all organized around uh, the military effort going on in the East. And Alexandra prioritized her father's well-being knowing full well that he, you know, the people that he was taking aim at were her former friends and, and, and former neighbors. And she, but she nevertheless prioritized her, her father's well-being. So I think that that's a perfect um, example. And everyday war is, is distinguished from war itself by its objective. So Alexandra and people like her, um, were motivated to maintain and preserve their caring connections. A second theme, um, and one that actually emerges from this kind of everyday war that I've been describing, is everyday ethics of care. So in situations like Ukraine's, in which there are violations of humanitarian law and residential areas become um, targets uh, of the military efforts. Um, what I saw emerging was um, that people um, who could no longer rely on sort of established transcendental laws or morality um, had to improvise. And so everyday ethics of care have to do with civilians' moral thinking about human vulnerability and the difficult choices that they have to make um, when established rules have been 
upended. I think uh, really a, a wonderful example of these everyday ethics of care is Taurus. So I met Taurus and Taurus, Taurus came out of retirement at a time when, again, the Ukrainian military was really struggling early in early in the conflict. Um, this was a time when the Ukrainian military was not able to retrieve fallen soldiers on the field of battle. And so Taurus took it upon himself to lead small teams uh, into the um, Russian defended territory, um, and they drove on mined roads. They negotiated face to face with armed militants um, and cataloged remains that were partially decomposed before returning them to um, government controlled portions of Ukraine. Um, and they did all of this work with you know tools that they had brought from home. I wanted to know why. And I think that um, their activities really demonstrate how extreme violence elicited this profound care and really improvised ethics that I find so important. What Taurus told me was, you know, they wanted to bring the families of the deceased peace of mind, um, even if they couldn't bring peace itself. So they saw their actions as contributing to the survival of their country. Um, he and you know he clarified that they tended to the dead and the bereaved, you know, not because they knew them personally, but because it seemed like the right thing to do. Um, so this is you know both of these examples, Alexandra and Taurus, um, are to say that you know civilians matter for the success of military efforts when we think about those volunteer battalions and Alexandra's father um, for survival um, and for the dignity of the dead and the peace of mind of the bereaved. Well, what would you like in our listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Mm, you know, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think, you know, as an anthropologist, um, people in Ukraine entrusted me with their stories. And that's really an honor and a privilege and to my way of thinking also a responsibility. So I see our dialogue as a way to both give listeners a sense of what the book contributes and also to deliver some of their stories to audiences. How does your book expand our understanding of intersectionality? Yeah, so the um, the concept of intersectionality emphasizes the overlapping quality of social identities. And the theory suggests that, you know, people may be disadvantaged by multiple sources of oppression simultaneously. So identities based on race or ethnicity, class, sexual orientation, other factors overlap and um, discrimination, um, you know, different forms of discrimination coexist and reinforce one another um, in ways that can be difficult to dismantle. Um, 
I talked about intersectionality and adopted it to, to illuminate what was happening to relationships in Ukraine. I think that Alina really exemplifies this well. Um, she was the wife of a pastor and a humanitarian and um, became a humanitarian herself after she was displaced from the East. Um, and she, as the way she put it was, you know, when a wife who is totally into volunteering comes home, she's thinking about issues of life and death. And if her husband says, where's my borscht? She'll look at him and say, what borscht? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Right. And, and so I think that her, her description of this small domestic conversation really highlights the extent to which uh, volunteering gave people like Alina a new sense of meaning and purpose in life that led them to reorganize their life's priorities. So the intersectionality that interests me is between different kinds of attachments. And you could summarize it in terms of the, the reorganization of relationships between relationships. Uh, another example might be Mirabelle. Um, she dramatizes this concept of intersectionality very well because she divorced her husband as a result of the conflict, um, explaining that she wanted to get her parents out of the war zone her husband didn't. Uh, he intended to stay. And so in that situation, he stayed with his parents um, and she left with hers. And, you know, as she described it to me, uh, she said, you know, I valued my parents more at that moment and had to prioritize their safety uh, over her marriage. Now, had it not been for um, the military conflict uh, I don't believe that they would have, you know, their their marriage would have come to that that juncture. Um, and so the challenges that people faced in their relationships were partly ideological when they found themselves um, having different political views. Um, they were partly related to gender norms when old roles no longer worked and new ones had yet to be configured. Um, and, and sometimes it was also part of, um, of physical or psychological trauma. So friendships and family relationships really became crucibles where much larger forces intersected and people had to balance competing demands on their time and on their attention by political loyalties and convictions, um, family commitments, and the bonds that they had um, built over time with one another. What is Cafe Patriot? Can you contextualize it? Um, absolutely. So Cafe Patriot was a war-themed cafe in the western part of Ukraine that was established when Ukrainians were far less united against Russia than they are today. And, and this was a time when people in the Western part of the country really questioned what was going on in the 
eastern parts of the country, many of them would have preferred to simply, you know, go about their lives without really devoting much attention to it. And uh, so I interviewed the cafe's proprietors, and one of them, Yuri, um, himself uh, a war veteran, decided when he demobilized that he wanted to create a space where he could assist other veterans. He talked about it as um, a way to provide veterans with an antidepressive atmosphere so that they could heal after war. At the same time that he provided a context for deeper discussions about what was going on in the eastern parts of the country um, among the non-combatant patrons. So I think that the um, cafe highlights more about the conscious and deliberate ways that uh, civilians and non-combatants were responding to war creatively. Uh, I think that Yuri also uh, exemplifies the intersectionality that I was speaking about a few minutes ago because he told me about uh, really experiencing a shift in his personal values as a result of the conflict. Um, at the time that it broke out, he was a businessman in Moscow and then he began asking himself what he was doing for his um, his country of birth, Ukraine. And so he, um, he volunteered to fight in the volunteer battalions and gradually experienced um, a shift in his priorities in the direction of the, um, the friendships that he built as a, a volunteer soldier. Um, so he talks about a lot about how if before he prioritized business, as a result of the war, he came to place a much higher value on his relationships with his comrades. And the cafe was part of honoring that experience in a physical place. The cafe was actually closed down because um, the authorities in which it operated objected to sort of this militarized atmosphere that they thought he was creating. Now, if he opened that cafe today, I'm suspecting that he would have received a very different reaction from local authorities. How does Edward Said's concept of Orientalism apply in the Russia-Ukraine war? Can you explain what you refer to as practical Orientalism? What are the similarities and differences between this concept as it is employed in your book and Said's concept? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, I talk about Orientalism towards the end of the book, uh, Everyday War. And um, of course, Orientalism is uh, a way of, of viewing cultural others that constructs mythologies and stereotypes that serve the geopolitical ideologies of governments and elites. And Edward Said, who uh, first introduced us to this concept, 
takes into close account how views of others are often sexualized, how other people are often separated into types based on their physical characteristics. But his observations can be more fully developed in recognizing how people are constructed as others through sensory experiences in addition. So as Pasha put it to me, one of my one of the people I interviewed, um, he no longer wanted to breathe the same air that had been in these Russian lung, lungs because it had become so distasteful to him. Or as another person put it, um, the um, Russian mercenaries who came into their regions uh, smelled badly. They smelled like they didn't belong. Or people would talk about how suddenly they would experience a sensation of suspicious glances drilling into them that was quite uh, unpleasant um, because they felt that the the Russians in the eastern part of the country had begun to hate the people who identified as Ukrainian. So I think practical Orientalism um, becomes a way of understanding how these social differences are performed and managed in everyday sociality. Uh, and um, I think that the you know, if we think about it in terms of embodied Orientalism, it uncover, uncovers this very important additional layer of, of meaning whereby Ukrainians began to think more and more over time in terms of a real division between us Ukrainians and them Russians. And so... It was the starting point for a cultural logic, if you will, in which the Ukrainian military engagement had to make sense in terms of, of, of saving Ukraine from people viewed as perhaps less civilized, as more heathen, um, who, had, who had taken control of what was then called um, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. And so people even came to um, view these individuals as um, as brainwashed uh, residents. Um, now, to be sure, the people in, in those proto-republics were far from homogenous, um, really occupying a diversity of, you know, political positions and Really, my point is that, um, like registering military trauma in in your body, uh, people began to recognize social differences in part through the body, and practical Orientalism becomes a way of of sort of expanding on these ideas and showing how discourses about um, political differences were operationalized in social life. Can you explain the term zombification? Can you interpret this term for us? Yeah, so zomb that's a, that's also a great question. Zombification was a word that people I spoke with used to 
describe what they perceive to be as mental challenges resulting from the hybrid war that was being waged against them, in which information and social media were used to influence people. So um, it ties back to what I was talking about a minute ago of this um, practical Orientalism in which people were viewed as less civilized, as, as heathen, as brainwashed. And this is important because uh, if wars used to be fought by the regular forces of, our, of, of states, what we now see in contemporary wars are that they're being waged um, with varying combinations of state and non-state actors, first of all, but um, also using a variety of means. And so we see, you know, control over the mass media or the infiltration of local governance or um, the use of proxy or mercenary forces and, um, you know, massive misinformation campaigns. Territory is won today in part through influencing how people think. Um, and misinformation is a big part of that. So um, the people that I spoke with used the term zombification to refer to people who they thought were no longer thinking clearly as a result of information warfare. In some ways, it was a, a conflict, an interpersonal conflict calming mechanism um, to the extent that it enabled people to place the blame not on the person with whom they disagreed or that person's inner qualities, but the leadership of the other country. At the same time, however, no one refers to oneself as a zombie. So in a way, it also reflects this process of drawing new internal frontiers between people loyal to Russia and the people loyal to Ukraine. What is your book's contribution to the study of internal displacement? Many of the people that I interviewed for this book were internally displaced within Ukraine. And I sought to expand the study of internal displacement beyond equating internal displacement with loss and misfortune. You know, I was speaking a little bit earlier about how I became interested in the activities that people engaged in on behalf of one another. And that's a crucial part of this because, you know, with other scholars, I'm very interested in um, how um, involuntary immobility, right? The people who stay can be as or more vulnerable than the people who are able to flee a conflict zone. And also um, how, you know, when I began to um, ask IDPs how they felt on a particular day, um, I was really surprised by the words that they used with positive valences like safety, joy, gratitude, they were really becoming, you know, in very 
positively engaged in the defense of their country, uh, assisting other people who had been displaced. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind as we think through perhaps some of the the images that are so prevalent in the media today. Um, so in terms of, you know, anthropological studies of internal displacement, um, anthropologists have criticized what they call um, relegating people to a, you know, what has been called a, a suffering slot because, um, you know, there's a tendency in studies of war and conflict. There's a tendency in studies of, forced displacement um, to focus exclusively on abjectivity um, and, and look primarily at these experiences of, you know, the loss of an entire social and, and, and metaphysical order um, or the loss of a sense of self. That does happen in, in war zones. That does happen as a result of population displacement. Um, however, I think that um, in addition to those experiences, what um, some people were experiencing was um, something that's a little bit more, more nuanced. Um, in my work with the internally displaced um, and those adversely affected by the conflict in Ukraine, I began to view them not solely in terms of violence and war, but rather also through this lens of the mutual care that they were mobilizing and that they were able to foster in a very difficult environment. What is your book's contribution to international relations theory? I think that my book's contribution to international relations theory is to provide an anthropological lens on sort of three distinct uh threads or themes um, within international relations theory, um, namely um, feminist uh, international relations theories on militarization, um, the theorizing on everyday peace within peace and conflict studies, and finally, um, the uh, idea of the necropolitical and necroactivism. So to, to just give you a brief uh, encapsulation of those three things, um, the book advances theorizing on everyday peace, which laudably aims to decenter the state so that higher scholars might take into closer account non-state actors, including civilians. And everyday peace um, is important because it has done a great deal to inform the multi-track diplomacy um, that posits different roles for different types of actors. The way I advance it, based on the data that I collected, is to say, first of all, peace is a luxury that many people in Ukraine could not afford. And that directly inspired me to develop the concept of everyday war that we've been discussing. In addition to that, um, I argue that um, everyday war, I mean, everyday peace should be valued 
for what it contributes, not so much to geopolitical peace, um, because those influences are difficult, if not impossible, to quantify and to trace, but rather the value that's placed on uh, everyday peace should be the value that it brings to people's lives. And so um, we see that, you know, the civilians mattering for um, people like Taurus, right, who helped um, the bereaved gain peace of mind by helping, you know, people that he didn't know, or Carrillo, who smuggled pediatric insulin to Russian children, right? The value is for the people who enact it. Um, as for ideas about, uh, as for feminist um, international relations theory on militarization, um, these scholars study the proliferation of military values and ideas as a largely unconscious process into society. And what I saw happening in a rapidly militarizing world was very different. As I write in Everyday War, um, people were far more conscious and deliberate than theories of militarization predict. They were very aware of the forces going on around them, and it was um, far from an unconscious or even insidious process whereby um, their values and their priorities changed. Um, and then um, third of all, we come to these ideas about um, bare life and the necropolitical. Um, that contribution is more implicit, I think, in the book, um, but it pertains to um, theorizing on bare life and the ideas about death worlds. Um, although populations in the um, eastern part of the country in Donbass were certainly living through uh, deplorable conditions of life. Um, the argument that I make in my book is not so much about sovereignty or state policies as it is about what happened between people intersubjectively in response to these inhospitable conditions. And of course, um, in a war zone in which um, there was death, there was destruction, People did not lose their humanity. In many ways, they regained it. Um, and that manifested in the everyday ethics um, that we've been discussing today. What ethical considerations did you act on in undertaking this research? You know, I think from an anthropological perspective, um, I took an interest in the ethics of care um, more than the sort of ethics that are um, grounded in sort of these transcendental um, laws that have been laid down by philosophers. And I think, you know, another way in which the ethical was very um, important to my research um, had to do with the way that the research was um, carried out. And um, that had to do with um, really um, to, you know, my interactions with the people that um, agreed to speak with me um, in, in two ways. First of all, very strict um, anonymity. 
even with the humanitarians that were using pseudonyms, you know, I imposed pseudonyms on top of pseudonyms to protect their identities. Um, so anonymity was part one. And then part two was um, when I worked with people who had been displaced, I was very mindful um, of letting them know that they could stop the conversation at any time, um, choose not to answer a question at any time, take a break at any time, so that um, they remained um, at choice at all times. And I saw that as a way of trying to create some um, emotional safety for the people who had been through extremely difficult experiences. In what ways did you personally cope with vicarious trauma and the process of undertaking this research? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think that um, the the book um, Everyday War tries to expand the understanding of trauma by thinking about the way, thinking very carefully about the way people talk about trauma. So trauma is really a central, you know, organizing principle for comprehending this, you know, humanitarian crisis-filled present. And um, as an ethnographer, I was interested in how the concept of trauma began to place a little bit too much emphasis on um, the individual victim and on psychopathology. Um, so it has a way of casting survivors of war and conflict as these innocent and helpless victims in a situation um, where, again, it's more complicated than that. Um, you know, in my experience of the war, of, war in Ukraine, um, it was often you know, dividing the combatants from the non-combatants, civilian from military, was sometimes very difficult because the two things had become so imbricated. Um, and this isn't to say it's that we shouldn't focus on trauma, because this is, of course, the contribution of uh, psychiatry and psychologists in war zone. Um, but as an ethnographer writing about trauma, in terms of communicating the stories that people told, um, it was really a challenge, right? Because trauma, um, traumatic experiences, in a way, exceed language, and overwhelming experiences associated with violence are well known to result in in difficulties um, telling a story in chronological order. Right, frightening, painful, extraordinary experiences disrupt one's ability to recount things, um, progressing through like a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, what I did was rather than um, imposing an artificial order on the way people were talking about their experiences, um, I tried to recreate the way that they talked about it through their embodied experiences um, on one hand and through um, the objects that became significant to them um, on the other. As for, you know, to answer your question, um, as for my own 
sort of coping with the vicarious trauma um, in the process of undertaking the research, um, you know, I think that while I was in the field, I didn't so much as cope as uh, adapt in some of the same ways as the people I was speaking with. Um, and I, I developed a, the same high, high tolerance for risk that they had. And I guess your listeners should probably, should probably care, uh, clarify that, you know, um, what we mean by vicarious trauma um, is, it, of course, that people listening to stories um, about experiences that are, you know, frightening, violent, overwhelming, um, may suffer some of the same effects as those who went through them. So, for example, um, the people who recorded the stories at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia reported experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. The way I coped with that was um, to uh, really, really dosage, like limiting the number of people um, that I interviewed in a given day, taking breaks from interviewing at certain times, um, and that was a really um, important part of my my coping strategy. I think also as a researcher um, working alone in the country at war, there were there were certain things that I just really didn't uh, allow myself to uh, feel at the time. I started, you know, effectively, you know, postponed some emotional responses to get through certain conversations or certain converse, uh, situations in the present. And the understanding came later when I was doing the process of um, and analyzing the interview transcripts and writing the book. There's a passage I'd be curious to ask you about on page 144, where you write as follows. Subsequently, the practice faded in importance until the American Civil War, when bringing rank-and-file soldiers home became an issue. As one soldier during the American Civil War wrote, it is dreadful to contemplate being killed on the field of battle without a kind hand to hide one's remains from the eye of the world or the gnawing of animals or buzzards. President Abraham Lincoln responded to the increasingly widespread sentiment that the retrieval of remains is the only morally correct course of action by signing a bill to establish new national cemeteries. With time, the practice spread and came to be seen as a sacred duty to those who make what has been called the, act, the ultimate sacrifice. Envision for a moment your own remains lying in a ditch, being picked at by birds of prey and gnawed by animals. This profoundly unsettling, unsettling prospect was within the realm of possibility for the men and women serving in Ukraine's armed forces after some military encounters. What did it mean that this task, sacred in the eyes of so many, was left to volunteers, grasping how the task of body collection could be left to volunteers, and how volunteers had risked their lives to take up this charge 
stands to enhance our comprehension of the centrality of civilians in contemporary conflicts. Can you say more about this for us? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. The passage that you read refers to the work of the Black Tulips who in the very early days went into what was then called separatist controlled territory. Um, it's now, of course, called a war zone. It refers to, to you know, their moral thinking about human vulnerability. And I explore this in terms of this idea of necroactivism. So the activism surrounding the dead. And that's an idea that was developed by Lesham, who took an interest in the agency surrounding negotiations about the placement of human remains in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And he suggested that if we we trace these forms of activism that center on the dead, it will counter the unnecessary, you know, an unnecessarily negative picture um, that's conjured in writings in political philosophy on the necropolitical. Because he was so interested in these, you know, resistant, um, these resistant politics from below to uh, uncover these positive activities. And I think that the activities of the Black Tulips really um, exemplify this form of activism. It should also be clarified that um, after the um, after this period in the conflict on in um, the eastern parts of the country, uh, and as you know, in, in part as a result of this activism, the Ukrainian military vastly expanded its efforts in this regard. Um, also formed. Uh, an alliance, um, it's called CIMIC. Um, it's a civil and military alliance that, uh, you know, increased their activity. And so that's, you know, that type of experience, the military has become so much stronger um, since the beginning of the war. I would also say that... Um, you know, there's another element of this, um, this activism that is, uh, that, that, that Carrillo told me about, right? So Carrillo uh, also worked um, sort of as a, a colleague of the Black Tulips. Um, and what he tried to impress upon me was that um, this activism was part of a of a larger shift in values away from the, the old uh, Soviet values in which life could be treated as dispensable to new values in which every single life matters. And, you know, whether, you know, whether a person is living or deceased, every single person matters. And Carrillo came to that realization himself um, as part of his efforts to deliver insulin to the to Russian controlled territory, you know, encountering many of the same obstacles that were encountered by the black tulips um, so that 
children wouldn't wouldn't um, die as a result of uh, lacking insulin. Another quote that I'd be curious to ask you about is on page 91. You write the following. A central through line of this book is that the war attuned people to human vulnerability and elicited caring from others. That thread runs through this chapter in the form of an extension, an extensive conversation on divorce and family upsets that ran alongside evidence of families holding together. As a result of the war in Donbass, family and nation experienced not only interrelated, but also mutually entangled crises. Family and nation are traditionally analyzed separately. For people living through the conflict over the Donbass and Luhansk provinces, these categories were superimposed, the complexities magnified by the issues of life and death. And thinking about the forms of intimacy forged in and around the territorial conflict in Donbass, concerns about family and marital dissolution elicited efforts toward repair. This powerful vision shows how intimacy was shaped as much through war, conflict, and displacement as psychology. As suggested above, one way to think about the war's effects on intimate relationships is in terms of intersectionality. The war upset the relationship between relationships. Volunteering to help with humanitarian efforts could take precedence over long-established rituals of sh sharing daily meals. Brothers could become political adversaries and complete strangers or distant relatives could suddenly become close allies while the nation has long been disfigured as a family has long been while the nation has long been figured as a family the family can be viewed as a mirror of the nation or a crucible of working out its tensions families who disagreed about politics adopted the same strategies that were found among friends they avoided contentious topics while remaining otherwise close took breaks from one another and distanced themselves, often blamed the media for the zombification of relatives through unbalanced news reporting. Evidence that family is nation writ small was especially present in the work that organizations were doing to counsel romantic partners and families. In cases I found, counseling entailed encouraging people to hew closely to traditional gender norms. The family, too, is an imagined community. Taken together, all of this affirms the extent to which relationships are not self-contained and their operations or energies, romantic and family relationships, become crucibles for larger political, economic, and military forces. Can you elaborate on this for us? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. I think that studies of the nation have rightly prioritized the nation. And those studies show us the product, right? National identification, national loyalty, without necessarily uh, in uncovering enough of the processes through which that outcome is achieved. So you may recall that Benedict Anderson wrote about how you know, literacy rates, national languages, and print media, like the newspaper, contributed to forms of national identification and 
this kind of collective imagining of a national entity. Um, these are important, um, but they're also at a more macro sociological level. And what I'm so interested in is, you know, what is the subjective process through which that takes place? And I think that, um, you know, Larissa is a really good example because um, she told me that she, you know, she grew up in a Russian speaking area, identified as Russian, um, had had the Russian language as her primary language, but um, gradually um, came to identify as Ukrainian um, as a result of the war and losing her son. Um, and this was a very, um, so she, she her son um, enlisted in an elite airborne division um, and was then shot down not too far from you know, the place where, you know, both he and, and Larissa had been born in the East. Um, and so she talks about how um, that would have been painful enough um, if it hadn't been that her mother and her sister had um, sided with the, uh, the, the, the Russians and even contributed funding to the, um, to the, to the war effort. Um, and so she talks about how, um, as a result of this experience, she came to decide that her true loyalties lay with Ukraine and that that was something that wasn't even really translatable into Ukrainian language, right? She decided that first was Ukraine. Um, and so this harkens back to the um, the intersectionality that we were talking about earlier, as well as national identification. Um, and so I think that um, it's a very emotional process. It's a very personal process. Um, and it may not have even happened if she hadn't lost her son um, in the fighting. So one of the contributions that the book seeks to make is to um, contribute to the literature on the nation by turning that standard equation that the the nation is the family writ small upside down to consider how we could begin to um, consider the ways in which the family is also the the nation writ small um, that had distinctive um, gender dimensions um, at the time that I was doing my research. Um, the, you know, many of the social workers were interested in um, helping people adjust from their um, military experiences by returning to the roles that they had had before the war. Um, so that was the, the, the gender um, dimension of it. They felt that that would contribute to, you know, stabilizing a family and preventing the kinds of family dissolution that I alluded to a little bit earlier um, that that happened, you know, either as a result of trauma or geographical se uh, se um, separation. What, there's a quotation on page 160 that I would be curious to ask you about. You write as follows. Ukraine's robust response to Russian aggression since the 2022 Russian invasion is consistent with and in many ways amplifies 
the book's core insights. The quote-unquote everyday war described in this book has only intensified. Can you expand on this? Absolutely. Um, so the book explores these myriad examples of the everyday war from delivering groceries and antibacterial ointment to the front, to holding bake sales to support battalions. And in with since the full-scale invasion in February uh, 2022, those activities have expanded and include things like making homemade Molotov cocktails or weaving camouflage nets that are then driven directly to the front, um, assembling roadblocks, sometimes called hedgehogs or destroying road signs to disorient Russian forces. Um, now I think really every Ukrainian has to live this everyday war um, to a greater or lesser extent. And the tactical kinship that I describe in the book, um, a subcategory of everyday war in which families are, are leveraged um, to contribute to the defense of Ukraine has really become state policy. Um, and so I would also add that um, the, you know, the, the windows for everyday peace um, have really closed with this existential threat against the country. As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this book? Well, um, in addition to um, my book tour, I'm working on a new manuscript that explores the subjective experience of the Russian occupation of Crimea. Uh, a great deal has, of course, already been written about the geopolitical significance of that event. Um, and my next book uh, will help readers understand how it was lived. Um, so it will delve into how this traumatic foreign occupation um, was um, experienced by the people who went through it. For more information about my work, uh, your listeners could follow me on social media or go to my website, GretaEuling.com. Um, if they're interested in finding the book, um, they could order it directly from Cornell University Press, Amazon, or really anywhere books are sold. I am overwhelmingly grateful for the time you generously devoted to this conversation today. And I'm tremendously indebted to you for your generous and thoughtful answers to everything we conversed about in our dialogue. As we end our conversation today, I'd like to sign off by saying that I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue today with Greta Uling. She is a lecturer at the University of Michigan, where she teaches for the Program in International and Comparative Studies, and is also associate faculty with the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. We have been discussing her new book, Everyday War, The Conflict Over Donbass, Ukraine, published by Cornell University Press 2023. Thank you.